I really never feel like I can follow that intro video. It's just so dramatic. But it's great. Hey, uh, again, it's good to see you guys. My name's John. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're watching online, thank you for watching. Um, And we are just glad that we get to be a part of whatever day it is for you today. So thank you for watching online as well. So uh, we are in part three. So when we finish today, we'll be halfway finished with a six-part series we're calling So What About? Talking about the problems many people might have with Christianity. Um, questions people have about Christianity. That's why we called it, so what about? You're like, yeah, okay, I, that's good. You know, I, I, Jesus, love, I get that stuff. So what about this? What about that? And so we're exploring those questions, important questions. And we call this an open conversation about, Christi- uh, yeah, about Christianity. But we haven't really been talking to each other, have we, if you've been here? I've been talking to you. That's the way I like it. It's safer for me. <laughs> But there is a way that this can be a conversation. Those welcome cards in the seat in front of you. On the back, uh, you can tell us if there's things you want us to pray about for you. We pray as a staff every Tuesday. But also, there's a section that says, so what about? As I'm talking tonight, if you have any questions about anything, maybe it's about what I'm talking about, maybe it's not what I'm talking about, maybe it's about life or God or whatever, ask a question. Write it on there, and then after service, you can go to the information table and drop that piece of paper right in the box, and we will get back to you this week. And if you're online, you can do the same thing. It says um, under Discover, where you said watch a message or whatever it says, uh, there's a ask a question, and you can do the exact same thing online as well. And I think this is an important conversation that we're having, exploring the questions, the problems a lot of people have with Christianity. In fact, uh, not this week, but the week before, I got an email from somebody I'd never met, somebody who had never been to our church, but had kind of found us online. And here's what the email said. I'm a little skeptical when it comes to God and Christianity, but I figured out that Christianity is the religion that makes the most sense. I still have a lot of doubts, but I'm trying to learn more because if this is the truth, then it's important. If this is the truth, then it's important. And they wanted to see the evidence. They wanted to follow the evidence. Not just where they felt like, okay, maybe, you know, this kind of feels good. I want to believe this. But they said, if this is true, I want to know. Because it's important. They're following where the evidence leads. And that's been our ground rule for this whole series. It's going to keep being our ground rule. We are going to follow where the evidence leads, not where we hope it leads. Of course, our other ground rule was, if you remember, be cool. Okay, this is not ammunition to, to blast an atheist friend. If, you, you know, if you're a Jesus follower and you're here, like, yes, okay, finally. Somebody's teaching me how to, how to fight the, the debate. No. Okay, in fact, if, you, if you're thinking of that person that you want to share this message with because you're going to win the argument now, don't share it. That's not the point of this. Okay, this is to have a conversation, to answer some questions, not to fight. Now, if you say, hey, this is what we're talking about, and I kind of think it'll add to the conversation, share it. Okay, that's fine. But do not fight with this. Be cool. See, now, often when people are exploring Christianity, like this email that I got trying to say, okay, is this true? A lot of times what they go, you know, whether, you know, whether they, um, they want to believe, whether they're um, maybe not wanting to believe when they have questions, whether they grew up believing and now they're asking questions on their own, maybe for the first time, whether they, you know, they're simply looking to see, look, I grew up a Christian, I, I believe this stuff, I really do believe Jesus rose from the dead, but is there, is there really a foundation to what I believe? See, when people are asking those questions, often 
it, this topic will come up, the Bible. The Bible is such a, such, such a common problem people have with Christianity. In fact, the Bible can be a huge obstacle for a lot of people. The Bible can be a huge obstacle for a lot of people. And many people see the Bible as outdated. I mean, what, the last part of it was written 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years ago? Outdated, irrelevant, and, you know, let's be honest, mythological. A giant fish swallowing a guy, him alive for three days. This, they see it as outdated, irrelevant, and mythological. And if they see it that way, and this might be you, then why would you base your life on a belief system that follows this book. I mean, obviously a belief system based on this book is pointless at best. If you really dig into it, it's sad or evil at its worst. If the Bi- I mean, if the Bible has holes in it, if the Bible isn't true, many people think, if the Bible isn't true, if one part isn't true, then all of Christianity is false. I mean, not, that's not of course, talk about how Christianity actually predates what we call the Bible by 200 years at least, but we'll get, we'll, we'll get to that later. But all these problems, these questions are completely understandable. That's how I would feel too. Why would a book written at least 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine have anything worthwhile for me today? See, I think we're going to get to that. I believe However, that this thinking, this, these questions, really, not because you, you know, people are asking these questions because they, they just don't want to believe and their hearts are hard and they just, you know, they love Satan, they don't love Jesus. That's, I don't think that's why people ask these questions. I think people ask these questions because they're thinking, right? But often they don't have the evidence to look at. They don't know where to look. I think a lot of these questions that I was talking about are based on some huge just misunderstandings. Huge misunderstandings, especially not understanding what the Bible actually is. And so that's what I want to do tonight, is follow the evidence. I'm definitely not going to be able to cover everything tonight. That one thing that you're hoping I say, I probably won't say. So just get over it now. <laughs> you can write it on the so what about card. But I want to discuss some key issues concerning the credibility of what we call the Bible. And I want to ask this question as we start. Ask yourself this question. Remember, you're safe. I don't know what you're thinking. The person next to you doesn't know what you're thinking, so you can ask yourself this question. You don't even have to answer it, okay? But if the Bible can be shown to be trustworthy and reliable, would you give it a chance simply by reading some of it? Maybe it's something you've never done. Maybe it's something you only did as a kid. But if I could, if we can at least beyond, you know, just a little bit, show that it's trustworthy and reliable. Would you be willing to read some of it, maybe this week? We'll come back to that a little bit later. So as we talk about the Bible, I want to I get into the basics. The basics of what we call this, this book, right? And that's our first thing we need to cover. The Bible really, technically, is not a book, right? Nobody sat down one day and said, okay, you know what I need to do? I need to write the Bible, Hey, Steve, how's the Bible going? Oh, I'm on chapter three. We're getting through it. You know, my editor says I need 10,000 more words by the end of the month, and I don't know if I'm... Nobody did that, right? The Bible is not actually a book. It's a collection of ancient documents, and it's, it's been split up into two parts, two main parts, right? Your first part is what we call the Old Testament. It's a collection of documents that's recording the history of the nation of Israel, the ancient nation 
of Israel. That's what we call the Old Testament. In fact, we can call those the Jewish scriptures. Right? Those are written for the Jews. That's what, came, that's what Judaism came out of. Think Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, King David, that type of stuff. Okay, that's the first part. The second part, what we call the New Testament, contains eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. Eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. And then basically letters that his followers wrote explaining what it means to follow Jesus. Basically like the day-to-day, the nitty-gritty. Here's what it means to be a Jesus follower. That's the second half. How to actually live it out. And then about three to four hundred years, two to four hundred years after Jesus was around, all these letters and documents kind of got smushed together. They had the Jewish scriptures from, you know, hundreds of years before that. But then you get the New Testament and all those letters that kind of after the Council of Nicaea started, smushed them all together. And that's where we got what we call the Bible. But if you, if you were listening, for two to 400 years after Jesus, there was nothing called the Bible. There was the letter Paul wrote to the Romans. There was Mark's eyewitness account of Jesus' life. So when we call it the Bible, it's a little misleading. What we should call it is the biblical documents, right? Or the letters of Paul, the letters of James, the letters of John, that type of thing. But it's cultural to call it the Bible. So that's, we'll use that interchangeably. The biblical documents, the Bible, we'll use it all, all the same. The biblical writings, they're interchangeable. So three common problems I want to look at tonight concerning the Bible, the biblical writings. The first one, you can't trust the Bible because it was written hundreds of years after the events it says it records. Right? It's been changed so much over the years to suit those in power, most likely, that we have no idea what it originally said, what the original point of the writings are. So basically, the history of the Bible makes it unreliable. We're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about how, you know, one of the arguments is, one of the problems people have is you can't trust the Bible as a moral guide. Look at all the evil it condones. We'll talk about that. The third one we're going to talk about is, you know, the Bible's great and all, but Christians pick and choose what they follow in the Bible. So if you just get to pick and choose, why don't I get to just pick and choose? What's that about? And so we're going to consider these problems one at a time, because I think the story, the true story of the Bible can change your life. But first, you have to understand what it is. And so let's talk about all these problems that people can have with the Bible. So problem number one, the Bible's history makes it unreliable. And you've heard these arguments, right? If you've Googled the Bible, and you've gone to um, Reddit and seen what people have to say about the Bible, these are very common, very common problems. You know, the Bible, it was written hundreds of years after the original events. Hundreds of years after, you know, sure, maybe, yeah, historians say there's a historical Jesus, but the writings we have are hundreds of years after. So like all those miracles and stuff, that's just kind of like mythology that got worked in. You know, there's some ancient, ancient Greek, ancient Egyptian mythology that worked in the Jesus story that we have in the gospel. So we can't really trust, you know, what the Bible says about Jesus. Another part of that is, you know, since, since it's been changed so much, over the years, mostly by men in powerful positions in the church wanting to hang on to their power, it isn't even close to what it was originally meant to say. That's a very popular opinion. Some scholars still hold this opinion. In fact, Karen Armstrong, in her book, A History of God, wrote this. We know very little about Jesus. The first full-length account of his life was St. Mark's Gospel, which was not written until about the year 70 AD, some 40 years 
after his death. By that time, historical facts had been overlaid with myth- mythical elements, which expressed the meaning Jesus, the meaning Jesus had acquired for his followers, rather than a reliable, straightforward portrayal. So it was written 40 years after. So, you know, they, they, they had this meaning behind Jesus, their wonderful teacher who had left them, and they started adding mythological elements to it. You know, like telephone, right? That, that fun game of telephone that you've played, right? You know, you say, you know, Sally has nice hair, and then you whisper it to your friend, you whisper it to your friend, you whisper it to your friend, like, penguins eat chicken, right? It gets changed all that way because it's been transferred and transferred and transferred. It's been changed so many times you have no idea what the original was. Now, the problem with this, it's simply not true. That's not what happened. See, after looking at the historical and literary evidence, remember we're talking about evidence here, most scholars, both secular and Christian scholars, agree that the New Testament writings are the best attested documents in antiquity. Now, hopefully you're thinking, that's nice. I'm glad you said that, but what's your evidence? Right? I can, just, I can say anything I want. Why do those scholars say that? Why do they say it's the, it's the best, they, they are the best attested documents in antiquity? Well, here's the thing, and I'm going to try not to get too technical I'm going to leave out some stuff because I want to make this ha- make sense for everyone here. Not, I'm not talking down to you, by the way. That sounded bad. You guys are very smart, and you can handle all the facts. I just don't have time for it. So, now, to decide whether an ancient document can be trusted, scholars look at a number of factors. Two of those, or one of those factors, is the number of manuscripts they have surviving. How many manuscripts do they have of these writings? See, the more manuscripts you have, the more fragments and pieces you have of different letters, different books and stuff, the more it can be compared and contrasted for contradictions, mistakes, and changes. So let's say, you know, I have, I have my notes for this message, and I give it to 10 of you. This, my notes are the original document. I give it to 10 of you and ask you, you 10, to handwrite or type, whatever, these notes. Now there's 10 different copies. You probably, you might, you know, leave off a comma. Leave out a word, possibly. But if we collect all 10 of those, those, those documents that you wrote, we can see, okay, well, this one forgot a comma, but all the others have the comma. Oh, this one forgot and, but all the others have and. So obviously that and was supposed to be there. And so that's why they say, hey, the more manuscripts you have, the more copies of copies you have, you can compare and contrast. Say, okay, this is what the original was supposed to mean. Was supposed to mean. Now, another piece of evidence that scholars look for is how close to the original writing the existing manuscripts are. See, if you had those first 10 writings, those are like one step removed from my original writings, right? But if you have it, you know, 500 years later, who knows? You know, you have this huge gap between the original and what this copy says, and maybe what this copy says, maybe what that copy says. So how do we know for sure? So the main things that we're looking at is how many copies of these writings do we have and how old are those copies. Now, if we compare the New Testament, we'll just go with the New Testament. If you compare the New Testament manuscripts to the other, accept, ex, the other accepted writings of antiquity, and we'll look at a few, we find that the New Testament writings are the most trustworthy set of documents in the entire ancient world. You guys still excited? You still like tracking here? I know, this is like, oh my gosh, you're on the edge of your seat, you can't. Here, let me use some visual aids. So, 
Let's look at Thucydides. He wrote around 460 to 365 BC. He wrote about the Greco-Roman culture, and in fact, most of what historians know about his writings, they trust as accurate. So what do we have with him? We have eight copies of his writings, and the earliest manuscripts we have are 1,300 years after the original. But historians still agree, okay, this is pretty accurate history here. This is kind of, you know, he knew what he was writing about. Let's, let's do another. Aristotle's Poetics, right? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Five copies of it. The earliest we have, the earliest manuscript we have is 1,400 years after the original. But it still is say Plato wrote this, right? This is, this is his writings. The Poetics are Plato's writings, okay? Next. Julius Caesar's account of the Gaelic Wars. We have 12 copies. Now these are give and take, you know, I don't know what the current, very current today, maybe they found some yesterday, I don't know. We have 12 copies. The earliest we have is 900 years after the original. But they say, okay, this is, you know, this is Julius Caesar writing. He knew what was going on because he was writing about, it's like an autobiography of Julius Caesar. But the earliest manuscript we have is 900 years after he actually wrote it. So let's, let's compare. These are accepted historical documents of the ancient world around the same time period as the New Testament writings. Let's look, let's compare. The New Testament has 25,000 copies. And the earliest one we have, it's a fragment of Mark, is about 120 years after the original. See, all these others are accepted as history. When you compare it to the New Testament documents, there's, there is no comparison, right? It's kind of, it's overwhelming. It's so overwhelming, you're going to want to Google this. Because you're like, he's making this stuff up. I don't think I am. Google it. Google's your friend tonight, okay? Check it out. Now, you might say, that's nice. You know, that's, that's cool and all. I'm glad the historians think that's accurate. But here's the thing. Again, remember, remember Karen Armstrong's argument about the, 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 man, the writings, the, actual, the original writings are so far removed from the actual events that all this mythology could have worked its way in? You know, that's nice that we have the original documents, but they are still written way after Jesus' life. Well, here's the thing. Some of the documents we have of the New Testament, the originals, they were able to date it back, are 15 to 20 years after Jesus' life. 15 to 20 years after. Like, oh, that's cool. Thanks for just saying that. You know, now I believe you. Right? Let's, let's look at just some proof. Okay, here's some proof. We're going to go to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, it's totally cool. We're going to have it on the screen so you know I'm not making stuff up, okay? But 1 Corinthians 15, this is Paul writing to uh, a group of Jesus followers in the city of Corinth. And let's, let's just read it together. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. Gospel is the story of Jesus dying and coming back to life to save us from our sins. Remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, the the Jewish scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most, check, most of whom are still living. You don't believe me? Go ask them. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James is Jesus' brother, half-brother, by the way. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What I just read to you is the earliest writing we have about somebody believing in Jesus rising from the dead. See, this was written between 53 to 57 A.D., it actually predates, 1 Corinthians predates the four Gospels that tell the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All credible scholars agree that there was a historical Jesus that was executed by the Romans around 30 to 32 AD. And so what we have here is a writing saying that Jesus died, was crucified, and rose again, a writing from 53 AD. So we've got about 20 years difference there, right? Now, if that's all we had, I think it'd be pretty reliable. Like if, let's say, um, you know, Canada dropped an atomic bomb on New York City 20 years ago, would we kind of remember that? Would we like make up mythology about it? Or we'd say, hey, you know who did it? Canada. You know where it happened? New York City. Right? Think of other events that happened 20 years ago. There's not a lot of time for mythology to, to build up there, is there? Because we, we remember it. We are still alive. We were, well, some of us, some of us weren't born, sorry. But those of us who were, we remember it. But check out verse, verse one again. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached past tense to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. See, he told them about the story of Jesus' resurrection when he first met them in 52 AD. We're moving it back a little bit. That means that Paul is writing about Jesus rising from the dead, not hundreds of years later, but like I said, 20 years later. In fact, part of what he, he, he wrote, um, he, he, he was crucified, rose again, according to scriptures, that, a lot of scholars believe that was part of a, an existing creed a creed is like a saying that people have that they teach their kids, that they teach each other so they can remember the facts, right? And it kind of rhymes like A, B, C, D, E, F. You've remembered the creed. Good job. And so it kind of, it kind of rhymed for them so they can remember the facts of the gospel, the story of Jesus. And so that was already existing before Paul wrote this. They had time to create this, this creed. But go to verse 3. For what I received, so it's past tense, I passed on to you as the first importance that Christ died for our sins according to this. Received. So somebody had to tell Paul about this, right? So we're going even further back. In, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, he tells us that three years after he became a Jesus follower, he went to Jerusalem to meet the guys who had lived with Jesus and grilled them on Jesus' life. Grilled them on the facts, on the details. And so most scholars date Paul's conversion to Christianity 36 A.D., that means this conversation would be maybe three years after, so 39 AD. We're talking six to eight years after the fact. Not a lot of time for myth to creep in about Jesus' life, right? Six to eight years. Not hundreds, not 50, not even 10. No later than eight years. Paul goes to James Jesus' brother, and says, hey, James, did your brother really rise from the dead? Oh, I don't know. It's kind of hazy, you know? What it meant for me was that I have new life, and no. 
Like, yeah, he rose from the dead. I saw him. In fact, I thought he was crazy when he was saying, hey, follow me. I'm the son of God. I thought he was crazy. I said, knock it off. I saw him die. Then I saw him alive. Now I am leading his church in Jerusalem. We like to say, How, what would it take for you to say your sibling is God? For James, it took his sibling rising from the dead. And we have proof that he believed that. So James, did your brother really rise? Yep, cool. <laughs> Thanks for being here so I, could, so I could interview you. See, belief in the resurrection was documented while eyewitnesses were still talking about what had happened. It's not so far removed from the original event. It's right there. Right at the same time. The eyewitnesses were still there. And uh, we were basing this series on a book called The Problem of God by a guy named Mark Clark. And in his book, he talks about, um, where was I going with that? I just, I just totally blanked out. Oh, in the Gospels, they do something very interesting for ancient writings. They name people with specific names. Like this guy named Rufus, right? And, and, and his family. And the reason they put these names in there, they're basically saying, hey, you all know this guy. Go ask him if this is what happened. And so they do. Like, they're still alive. They go ask them, did this, did you know, did you, did you really, Simon of Cyrene, did you really carry Jesus' cross? Yeah, I did. It was awful. They named them so they can go ask them, did this happen? Yes. And then you might ask, okay, so if 1 Corinthians is written before, why is it, why are the Gospels written later? See, in ancient times, they, they didn't trust written documents as much as eyewitness testimony. Who knew who wrote it? Right? And so, for the disciples, the disciples that are telling people about Jesus' life, the apostles, they are telling people, hey, here's what Jesus did. He died, he rose again, here's what that means. But as they're getting older, they're realizing, you know what, we're not going to be around forever. So now our eyewitness testimony will leave with us, so we need to write it down. And so they wrote it down. And now you have eyewitness documents that say Jesus died and rose again. Isn't that interesting? That's why Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, who we've all heard of, and he's actually a, a former director of the British Museum, said this, in no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest manuscript so short as that in the New Testament. The history of the documents are reli is reliable. Problem number two, the Bible condones evil. The Bible condones evil. And we, we, there's a lot of examples we could look at. I'm gonna, I have time to look at one. Here's, and here's the argument. The Bible teaches that slavery is okay. Maybe you've heard that, right? There's, there's slavery. In fact, slaveholders in the early United States, this is, this is proven historical fact, they wrote it down, and we trust it. Slaveholders in the South of the U.S. used to say the Bible said it was good for them to keep slaves. They actually used the Bible to say, no, slavery is good. In fact, slavery is God-ordained. You can't fight slavery. They actually said that. So how can we trust a Bible that says that? In fact, here's what Paul said in, in Colossians 3.22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, 
and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Slavery is okay. In fact, if you try not to be a slave, you're disobeying your, if you try to run away, you're disobeying your master and therefore sinning and now you're going to hell. That's what they said. So how can we trust a Bible that says that? Well, when we hear slave, we think of our own country's horrible, horrendous history with race-based slavery. Where slave owners literally owned their slaves and could treat them as harshly as they wanted. They could split up families. They would, you know, they would do selective, selective breeding of their slaves to make them strong. Like all these horrible things, breaking up families, breaking their feet when they try to run away. All these terrible things. That's what we think of when we hear slavery. Horrible. But historians tell us that that is not what first century Roman slavery was like at all. It wasn't based on race. And they weren't owned the same way that slaves were owned in our horrible history. In fact, 85 to 90% of the inhabitants of Roman Italy were slaves or of slave origin. They enjoyed popularity in Rome. They were trusted household servants, teachers, librarians, accountants, estate managers. And because slavery really was kind of a form of employment, you could earn money as a slave, most slaves could work their way out of slavery in 10 to 15 years. It wasn't a lifetime thing. It was more of an economic type of situation for them. And so what Paul is saying is not that it is good to own another human or that slavery is a good thing. What Paul is saying in this passage, he's simply telling people who find themselves in this situation, in this economic situation, to work hard and respect their superiors. Are you guys in an economic situation where you should probably work hard and respect your superiors? If you have a job, you are, right? And so that applies to us. And Paul told masters, the employers, to treat their slaves with dignity. Why? Because, well, you know, if, if you beat them up, then they won't get such a good price at the slave market. No. He told them, treat your slaves with dignity because there is no difference between them and their slaves in God's eyes. Saying, hey, that slave that, you know, it works for you, you're the master, you're the, you're, the, you're the boss. In God's eyes, you are equal. You are not better. See? And then Paul actually tells slaves, hey, there's a, there's a pastor that says, hey, you know, if, you can, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. You know, work hard. If you, can, if you can earn your freedom, do it. Go for it. He's not condoning slavery. He's saying, be an example of Jesus' love to your employer. See, often when the biblical writers talk about things we find immoral, slavery, polygamy, treatment of women in the ancient world, often what they're doing, they're simply describing what happened. Right? When it says uh, David, King David, right, this, this great hero of the Bible, had this wife and this wife and this wife, it's not saying God says, hey, that's awesome, go get a bunch of wives. Right? saying this is what David did. It's describing it. And actually, every time you see polygamy in the Bible, it does not work out well, as you can imagine. Right? It's not saying, hey, do this. It's actually saying, probably shouldn't. Your culture says you should. It's a dumb idea. See, the Bible isn't prescribing these actions. It's just describing them. The biblical writers describe, writings describe evil. They don't prescribe it. They don't say, go do this. It says, hey, this person screwed up. Don't do this. The biblical writings describe evil, but never prescribe it. So the Bible doesn't, actually doesn't condone evil. 
Problem number three. Make sure you're paying attention for the next 15 minutes because you're not going to pay attention and then you're going to think I'm a heretic. I'm just warning you now. But anyway, here we go. Problem number three. Christians pick and choose what they follow in the Bible. Christians just, you know, they just pick and choose what they want to follow. Oh, oh, the Bible is God's word. Well, then why don't you follow this? Why don't you follow that? The truth is, many Christians actually do this. They do pick and choose, and they shouldn't. See, many people, Christian or not, do not understand what the Bible actually is. And because of that, they find all kinds of contradictions and crazy rules that people obviously don't follow today. Right? The the Bible says if your kid disobeys you, you can stone him. It does say that. I've never stoned my kid. I've never been sto- sto- I've never been th- had rocks thrown at me <laughs> by my parents. <laughs> yeah. But we Thank you. <laughs> I've, but I say, you know, we, I grew up in a Bible-believing family, but I've never had rocks thrown at me. I disobeyed. So they're just picking and choosing. I mean, how do you follow something like that, right? So then let's look at this one more time, maybe a little bit more depth. What is the Bible? This is extremely important. The Bible has two parts. There's two parts to it. We call it the Old Testament, and the New Testament. When we say testament, that comes out of a word that means covenant. I'll go even further for that, because that's not a word we use very often, right? Testament, covenant, meaning a contract, an agreement, a pact. The first part of what we call the Bible is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Contract. See, it's how God related to and dealt with the ancient nation of Israel. That is the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Every, see, it's how God dealt with the ancient nation of Israel. Every law, every rule in the Old Testament is for the nation of ancient Israel. Every time it says, thou shalt not, it is being written, it is a contract between God and ancient Israel. These are specific laws for a specific time given to a specific people for a specific purpose to show the need of a savior for humanity and to bring about that savior through a select group of people. So specific rules for these specific people for a specific purpose. See, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, gives us the backstory of Jesus, how we got Jesus, why we needed Jesus. But it is not what Christianity is about. It gives us the backstory, gives us the history, gives us, you know, here's why Jesus had to come, but it's not what Christianity is about. See, all the Bible, and I believe this, this church was founded on this, all of what we call the Bible is equally inspired by God. And we're not going to be able to get into inspiration and that type of stuff tonight. It's all equally inspired. It's all written, you know, God leading men along with his Holy Spirit. But it's not all equally applicable 
to us right now. It's all equally inspired, but it's not all equally applicable. No, listen closely, please. Go back and watch this. If you're like, oh my gosh, he's... No law in the Old Testament, and even, and I also am including, I shouldn't have gone this far, but I am, including the Ten Commandments. No law in the Old Testament applies to anyone today. Nobody alive today has to follow any law written in the Old Testament. Give me a second. Why? You're hopefully asking. Because something better, someone better has come. Let's see what Jesus said in Luke 22. This is Jesus with his disciples right before he's crucified. And he took the bread, took bread, and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. By the way, we've talked about this before if you've, if you've watched or if you've been here. Do this in remembrance of me. He's talking about Passover. Do Passover in remembrance of me. That's like me saying, hey guys, December 25th, celebrate me. Christmas is now about John Silva. Here's some bread. That's basically what Jesus is doing for these Jewish guys. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant new contract, new agreement between God and humanity in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant law where God was working with ancient Israel to bring about this Messiah, this Jesus. He fulfilled it. He brought it to a designated end. It's what he said in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, say it's bad and terrible, and the prophets, which is what we call Jewish scriptures. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. If you have a debt and somebody fulfills that debt for you, it's no longer there. It's it's, it's gone. Jesus brought the Old Testament law to its designated end. Why? Because he has a better law that covers everything. My command is this. My law is this. Love each other as I have loved you. The law of love. It's a better law. It's a better contract. He made the old law, the old covenant, obsolete, as the writer of Hebrews calls it. It's the... The old law is obsolete. Not meaning it's bad. It's just done. Right? That first iPod you got with the clicky sounds, it wasn't bad, but now it's obsolete. It doesn't do what you need it to do. It doesn't work. It doesn't apply anymore. That's what he's saying. See, now God deals not just not with nations. He deals with us. Deals with us individually. And all the work is on him. In fact, that's what the New Testament is about. And, and many of the hurts caused by Christians, and there have been many, and we are going to talk about that when we talk about hypocrisy. Many of the hurts caused by Christians are a result of trying to impose old covenant law onto someone else. Many of the hurts caused by Christians, people who say they're Christians, are because they tried to apply an old covenant law onto someone else. And we'll go, maybe they felt you know, superior because they, they followed that law. 
that Jesus said you don't have to follow anymore. When people pick and choose what to follow in the Old Testament, it's because they don't understand what it is and what it was for. So the biblical writings aren't a list of rules that people can pick and choose to follow. You know, I like this one, but I don't want to kill my kids. Emphasizing, you know, one rule over another, ignoring the others. They were written to get people, or they they weren't written. They also weren't written to get people to do what others wanted them to do. In fact, and listen closely, especially if you're just checking out church, checking out Christianity, maybe watching online, if you are not a Jesus follower, you are not expected to do anything written in the Bible. No law applies to you. Why? Because you're not a Jesus follower. Paul even says, who am I to judge those who, who aren't in the church? You know, let's, let's talk about what you guys are doing in the church before we you know, worry about them. Jesus kind of said something about you know, checking your own eye and that type of thing too. Now, we believe following Jesus makes your life better and makes you better at life. So if you're not a Jesus follower, you're like, I don't know about all this, you know, Jesus is God type of thing. You're welcome to try it out. Welcome to try out loving your neighbor as yourself, loving each other as Jesus loved you. But you are in no way expected to or required to. See, the, the, old, the, the biblical writings are not laws that you have to follow, you have to pick and choose from. In fact, the New Testament, the, all, all, the, all the biblical writings really are the story the true story of how much God loves his creation. How much he loves you. See, it's, it's the story that God loves you. He is not mad at you. He's not waiting for you to screw up so he can smite you. God is for you. He loves you. He created you. A relationship with him, a forever perfect eternal relationship with him is a free gift. You can't do anything to earn it. And we don't deserve it. We don't deserve a perfect relationship with him. Why? Because we've broken that law of love. Somebody asked Jesus, what's the top two laws of God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We've all broken that law. The biblical writings call that sin. We've broken the law of love. And just like when you go to a doctor and they have to diagnose the problem, that's what it's doing when he's talking about sin, saying there is a problem. You've sinned. You've broken the law of love. You've broken the relationship between you and God. Now, like I said, God loves you. He's, he wants to be with you. He wants to have that perfect relationship. He wants to have it restored. But you have broken the law. You've hurt his people, the people he's created, his kids. When people hurt my kids, I'm not too happy with them. Right? There's, there's a rift there. There's something wrong there. And so he must punish evil. A good king punishes evil in his kingdom, doesn't he? So he loves us, wants us to be with him. But we've broken the law and he must punish our evil. And so he solved that problem with Jesus. That's what this story is about, that there's a problem and there's a solution. It's Jesus who is 100% God, 100% human, who came to earth, lived the perfect life, died on the cross as a penalty for our evil, for our breaking the law of love, and then rose again proving that he was God, proving that that sacrifice was accepted, that the payment has been fulfilled. And now, all we have to do, 
not follow the laws, not follow all the rules, not give a bunch of money to a church, which isn't a bad thing, but all we have to do is trust. Not believe all the right, all the right stuff, but just trust that Jesus died for me. Jesus died to make me right with God. I can't do anything to take the evil out of me. I need someone else to pay that penalty and make me clean. That's the story. And it's accepted through faith, choosing to trust, not just believing there's a God. Right? Not just like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble, I need Jesus. No. Firmly and wholly trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you, to make you clean, to bring that relationship to perfection. See, this is the core of Christianity. See, it wasn't the Bible that created this story. This story. And those who saw it play out and then wrote about it, told us about it, wrote the Bible. And those writings were collected and put together in one place that we now call the Bible. The Bible did not create Christianity. Christianity created the Bible. See, this story, this true story has changed the world. It changed the world two to three hundred years before there was anything we could call the Bible. The message of the Bible, when we cram it all together, the message of the Bible is a message of love and freedom. The message of the Bible is a message of love and freedom. If, listen, if your version of Christianity however you've seen it played out, however you've tried to play it out, if your version of Christianity doesn't make you feel loved and free, you're doing it wrong. The message of the Bible, the message of Christianity is a message, message of love and freedom. So what do you think? Historically, the Bible is the most reliable collection of writings in the world. I think to reject it outright, to say, oh, the Bible's just full of myth and fairy tales. I think to reject it outright because of misunderstandings about its history or the culture it was written in would not be following the evidence. We agreed to follow the evidence. To reject it because you or someone you know didn't understand the progression of God's covenants and tried to pick and choose which laws to guilt people with reject it on that would be to, re- again, reject it on the basis of misunderstanding. Again, not following the evidence. So I say, why don't we try it again? Whether you're a Jesus follower or not, let's just read the biblical writings for what they are. The story of God's love for his creation. So I'm going to challenge you to do something really, really hard. Since the sarcasm. Start with John's eyewitness account. Jesus' best friend said, hey, my best friend was Jesus. Here's what his life was like. Here's why it matters. We call it the book of John. It's in the New Testament. Your challenge, read the gospel of John. Especially if you're like, yeah, you can't trust the Bible. Have you read it? Read this, read this. Read what John said and then let it speak for itself. See, John says the reason he wrote his account was so that people, us, we, might believe Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, have life in his name. That's a pretty good deal. Read this, understand it, believe it, and have life. Not just, you know, not just like, oh, you know, I feel happy right now. 
but real, full, meaningful, purposeful life now and forever in a perfect relationship with God who created you and loves you. What do you have to lose by reading this? The average reading of John should take about two hours. Some of us, it might take longer. And here's extra credit. Every time you see the word believe in the book of John, underline it. Or if you have your app, note it, highlight it. And then ask yourself, what would believing in this context, believing in this instance, mean for me? You can, you can even download a Bible app on your phone or read it online on your phone. Because I know all of you have at least five minutes of quiet alone time with your phone every day. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's disgusting. Wash your phone. But... That's five minutes of uninterrupted time a day that you could say, eh, I'm going to read the Gospel of John. That would take you about 24 days if you're regular. (laughs) You can do that. You can do it. Try it. I think you owe it to yourself to at least try it for two hours out of your life. So what if we started with what the biblical writings are truly about? Jesus. And then read them in that context. What if we followed the evidence? See, I think we would find that the first, I think we'll find what the first Christians found. There is more to this than some old book with obsolete rules for a time and place that's long gone. There is a living breathing God who loves you and died for you and rose again. And there are historical eyewitness accounts that prove it. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament so we can live in the freedom of the New Testament. And what I've found and what I hope you find is that the biblical writings are a reliable history of God's love for you. It's personal. They're a reliable history of God's love for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, think that you are not against us, but that you are for us. You are for us so much that you would die for us. Thank you for leading people to write their accounts about what that means and what that looked like and what it took for us to be with you for us to be made clean because of you. I pray that you'll, you'll give us the time, you'll help us make the time to read the account that John wrote about you. Show us who you are. Show us whether you're real or whether you're not. Thank you for everything you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you guys have a great week. Next week, we're gonna be talking about, uh, no, nothing, nothing, no, not a big deal, uh, the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Should be easy and light. Anyway, I hope you guys have a great week, and we will see you next week. Thanks for being here.